Amen. Would you stand with me, friends, for the reading of the Lord's Word? We're reading this morning from Matthew chapter 11. I'd like to begin in verse 16 and read to the end of the chapter. Again, let us give attention to the Lord's Word. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace who call out to other children, to the other children, and say, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds." Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of the miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the Lord's word. Would you please be seated? Again, Father, we thank you for your word and pray that as we prepare to take this supper in front of us, we ask for your blessing upon your word going forward now, and that you would bless your servant, and that you would bless these, your people, and that you would help us to have ears to hear. We ask that you would come and be present by your spirit, guiding guiding my words, guiding our thoughts, protecting us from evil. We ask that your kingdom would be advanced because of the name of Jesus Christ being lifted up. And we humbly ask these things, and now for your spirit's presence to bless these things. Again, praying in Christ's name, amen. There is a tremendous mystery to salvation. At the end of the service, we're going to sing what is, uh, I think, one of the sweetest hymns we have, How Sweet and Awesome is the Place. And it reads like this, as you sing it, um, How sweet and awesome is the place with Christ within the doors, while everlasting love displays the choicest of her stores. While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cries with thankful tongue, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room? When thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come. Twas the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in. 
else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. It's a mystery. Salvation is a mystery. How can some people who are given such great light and such convincing proofs of who the Lord Jesus was, how could they say, not interested, don't go there, don't want to be there? They witness such uh, and, and experience such powerful demonstration of the Lord's works, and yet they remained in a state of hardness and unrepentance. Notice that as we, and I, I started with verse 16 down through 20, as we see that John came doing this thing and Jesus came doing this and there was like, they were like chill children, Jesus says. Well, John comes doing this and you say, well, he's not doing it quite right, so we're not going to listen to him. And then I come doing this and you say, well, you're not doing it right either, Jesus, so we're not going to listen to you either. And he goes, it's not the problem of the, the messenger. The problem here was the hearer. And then he goes on to speak of the unrepenting cities, of all the great light that they had, of the miracles that Jesus had done. And he said, and this is startling, because as, as, as Christians, we understand the significance of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we shudder at it, and we go, don't, when we say these things, look at Jesus did, look at the Lord did to Sodom and Gomorrah, and he burned them up. But what happens to a people who have the light of the gospel who turn their back on it? It'll be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be for a people who turn their eyes, their, shut their ears to the truth of the gospel. So he has spoken such hard words to all of these inhabitants. And you might think, Boy, wouldn't you get discouraged? He came to his own, and his own didn't receive him. You might say, Jesus, maybe you need to go to a Toastmasters class. Maybe you need to learn how to speak more effectively to people. Because clearly your message isn't getting through. Maybe I'm not, I'm not alliterating the sermons well enough. Maybe they're too long. Maybe they're irrelevant to the people. Jesus doesn't ask any of those questions, does he? In fact, it's interesting that he would say what he does after what he has just said regarding these cities. Jesus is not discouraged. He has come, he has spoken, he has sent his disciples through Matthew 9. We see that he has great compassion upon his people. He preaches to them. They do not listen. And then he says in verse 25 through 27, at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. He's not discouraged. You would think he would be discouraged, but he was not discouraged. Rather, he gives praise. He makes a confession, an acknowledgement that the Father, God the Father, has sovereignly made a decree. Everything under in this universe is under his hand. His domain is directed uh, by everything, by his loving hand. And this includes salvation as well. Think about lightning for a moment. Guinness Book of World Records, at least when I was a kid, and 
the book club papers came out, and I always buy a new edition of the Guinness Book of World Records, and the, especially the ones with the pictures, and you find the guy who was struck on the head seven times by lightning. And I go, you think that guy's getting a message? <laughs> Scripture speaks about, in Job, that God, when he commands the lightning were to strike, he always hits his mark, that there's never a haphazard. Lightning is one of the most haphazard things to us, to our perception, to our judgments, but it is not the most haphazard thing. In fact, God always commands the lightning where to strike. You read the book of Jonah, it's a short book. Um, The Lord directs the wind. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. The Lord commanded the fish to vomit up Jonah. The Lord commanded a plant to grow so that Jonah might have shade. The Lord commanded and appointed a worm to destroy the plant, and then the Lord sends a scorching east wind again. All throughout the book of Jonah is the sovereignty of God over all creation. Fish and wind and waves and plants and lightning. Is the Almighty, is his hands short, Is his power limited to just the physical realm, or is his power not also over the soul and over the ear and over salvation? So while Jesus is looking at these cities and he's performed all of these wonderful miracles and they should be repenting in dust and ashes and saying, my God, you've come to us. They turn their backs on it And Jesus gives praise to the Father because the will of the Father is being done. Paul writes, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. The Lord hides these things which pertain to salvation, and he had kept the ears that didn't hear from hearing, the ears that were full of themselves and full of the songs of their own greatness, And he condescends to the infant like those who have no delusions of their own grandeur. As Peter would say in 1 Peter 5.5 that he is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble. So Jesus praises the Father for his mercy in showing these things to the lowly. It would be the lowly who understood who Jesus Christ is. They see their need of him. And not only does he give praise to the Father But he says it is well-pleasing in the Father's sight. In verse 26, he says, Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. Not accidental, not merely the way it has to be, but it was well-pleasing in the sight of the Lord. Ephesians 1, 3-6, we read this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention, important there, the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed upon us in the beloved. In Ephesians 1.5 we have this word kind intention, eudokia. In Matthew 11.26 this phrase well-pleasing is the exact same word as in Ephesians 1.5. Kind intention, well-pleasing. Why did he reveal himself to you and not to others, friends? It is because it is of his kind intention. In other words, no Christian can ever say 
I was the one who discovered God. But God showed himself to us by his kind intention. But why? Because. <laughs> That's the theological answer. Because. Because it was well-pleasing in his sight to do it. Because of his kind intention. It has pleased the Father to reveal this mystery, mysterious gospel to infants, to predestine us to adoption as sons through Christ to himself. This pleases the Father. But notice, friends, it also pleases the Son. So we read in verse 27, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Verse 27 is like a commentary on verse 25. Again, there are times, and many religions do this, right? Jesus, we've brought this out. The Doobie Brothers sang about it. Jesus is just all right with me. This is the mantra of the religions of the world. Notice, no religion ever cuts Jesus out of it. I think that's interesting. I think that's a very, the Hindus make place for Jesus in their scheme. The Muslims have a place for Jesus. The Mormons have a place for Jesus. Everyone's got a place for Jesus. Except nobody doesn't want to tell about Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible. We want to reinvent the Jesus of the Bible. What does the Jesus of the Bible say about Jesus of Nazareth? That he's God. And, and, and religions always want to look at Jesus and they consider him something less than God, maybe a man, maybe a superman. But always he's considered less than God. And verse 27 doesn't permit us to think of Jesus Christ as less than God at all. But like the Nicene Creed that we confess almost every other week, he is very God of very God. Notice that the Lord of heaven and earth hands over to the Son all things. One commentator said this. He says his control is no less than the Father's. He has authority over Satan and demons, over human ailments and handicaps, over wind and waves, body and soul, life and death, his own disciples and all other people to save them and to judge them. Any wonder, any wonder at all about who Jesus Christ is when the demons are cast out of legion and they come and ask, can you send us into that herd of swine over there? And he grants permission the enemies of God have to ask permission. Read the book of Job. It's not God here and the devil here and you're in the middle casting the deciding vote. That's rubbish. That's not biblical. It's God who says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That's a very uneasy place for us to be, isn't it? God, I don't know. You're kind of making yourself look a little bit dangerous. Friends, our God is dangerous. He is not tame. But he's good. But he's not tame. Ed Welch wrote a book called When God is Small and People Are Big. I think it's a book about anxiety. Our God is too small. There are things you read in the Bible that will make you break a sweat on your brow because you want to say, I don't get this. The book of Job, again. 
I want my day in court. God needs to answer to me. And God says, step up to the bench, son. And Job shuts his mouth. Because the point of Job is, I don't answer to you. I am the creator. I am not a creature. And I'm going to do things that are going to make you sweat. I'm going to do things that cause you to tremble. But I'm good. And I don't answer to you, says the Lord. It's a frightening thing. And when you look at these verses and you see this and you just read through here how these people have rejected the gospel. They've rejected the Son of God. They have seen his miracles, miracle upon miracle. And they say, not interested. You think we would be discouraged? That Jesus would be discouraged? And he is not. Because he acknowledges that God has something so much bigger going on than what you or I can fathom, my friends. And everything that the Father controls, Jesus controls as well. He has authority over your soul, over whether you get it or not, whether or not you will receive this blessing. Notice that he is known by the Father, and he also is he's known by the Father, and he also knows the Father. We know Jesus Christ in part because of what is re- revealed to us in the scriptures, but Jesus knows the Father intimately. The Father knows the Son intimately. Jesus said, He was with the Father before the earth was in glory. Jesus is not just an exalted man. He is very God of very God. The doctrine of the Trinity is orthodox, despite the fact that the word Trinity is never used in the scriptures. We see the Father, he is God. The Son, he is God. The Spirit, he is God. The same in substance, equal in power and glory. And he's not this effeminate, weak-looking picture. Get rid of those stupid pictures. They don't encapsulate who Jesus Christ is. The whole of Scripture can't contain all that Jesus Christ is. It contains what we need to know. But he's mighty, and he's big. He's in control. He knows the Father, and the Father knows him. This knowledge is a deep, penetrating knowledge that... uh, that that we don't just simply stumble upon. It is a knowledge that stems from the eternal relationship between the Father and the Son. Again, the Father knows the riches, the knowledge, and the wisdom that are found or to be found in the Son. And we are told in verse 27, and no one knows the Father except the Son. Because of this eternal relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the Son knows the Father with this penetrating knowledge. He understands and knows of his love, of his wisdom, and of the riches that await the sinner. He knows the will of the Father. All things are laid bare before him, and these things are known as well by the Son. If this is so, my friends, how is it that you or I can come to know the Lord? You can't unless Jesus Christ opens your eyes. This is a mystery. And I'm not saying it's an easy mystery to understand. We have to remember we're creatures. We're finite. I can't understand bazillions of things. John Burberry used this illustration years ago of the circle of knowledge. So you draw a circle on a piece of paper and you say, if this circle represents all the knowledge of the, that there is in the universe, 
why don't you shade in the portion of that circle that illustrates how much knowledge you have. And a person looks at it and they start to go, oh, and they put a prick of a pencil lead on that circle. That's what I know. See, friends, this is why we're dependent on the scriptures. We are not wiser than God. He tells us what is right and why we ought to follow it here. We would have no knowledge of Jesus Christ unless unless Jesus himself would open our eyes to this. And so the son knows the father and anyone to whom the son wills, that is, wants to or wishes to reveal him. Like the father, it pleases the son to to condescend, to show mercy to those who are broken over sin. Jesus said, I and the Father are one in John 10.30. They are one in essence and one in purpose. Jesus Christ has authority to save you and to make you get it. He knows what you need and who alone can meet that need. And he has the will to make him known to us just as the Father. So here, here is life and God an inexhaustible storehouse of blessing. All these people saw all that Jesus was doing. John the Baptist had preached. Jesus had preached. Jesus had done all of these miracles. And they're not listening. What would you think of somebody who could just speak the word and heal your body of cancer? What would you think of a person who could command thousands of demons to come out of a man and strike Um, a herd of swine, and actually tank an economy. And he could do it with just a word. What should you do? You would think we'd fall down on our faces and worship. We would say, this is the one. But they didn't. Here we have in Jesus Christ this inexhaustible storehouse of blessing, The Lord alone is the broker of salvation and he gives it to whomever he wants. Who is the perfect candidate for this? Who need apply? And this is where this this mystery, if we're not careful, we take it off the rails. I had a friend in seminary who we were uh, in our cage stage. For those who don't know what that means, is someone becomes familiar with the doctrines of grace or the sovereignty of God and they become so obnoxious you need to lock them up for a few years until they mellow. I was there. He was there worse. (laughs) And so we were sitting in his house one night, and he goes, God is sovereign over all things. Yes, absolutely. He's sovereign over the demons. Yes, absolutely. Sovereign over everything that goes on. Yes. So ergo, right, going all logic on me and mathematician, um, um, he's responsible for sin. And I said, no. Well, you just said he was sovereign. I said, he is sovereign. But James explicitly says he's not responsible for sin. Well, then how do those things work together? I don't know. Let me remind you of something. I'm a creature. I don't have, I have just a pinprick on that circle of knowledge like you. There are things, friends, in the scriptures we can't get our brains wrapped around. And so when we come to those places, what we should do is stick with what the scripture says and stop being too smart for your own good. Because the scriptures reveal to us a portion of what is needed. But it doesn't give us everything. And even if it did, 
we wouldn't have the hardware to be able to understand it. So you stick with what the scripture says. This is what the scripture says. That no one can come unless the son reveals the father to him. Salvation is a gift from the Lord. We're not, we're not proclaiming some fatalistic message. We are not saying that there is no need to evangelize because clearly what does the Lord say? Go and be my witnesses. If your Calvinistic doctrines, if your understanding of election takes you to the point of saying, I don't need to evangelize, you've gone beyond what the scriptures state and you're in error. And John Calvin himself never taught anything of the such. We stick with what the scripture says. God is a God who uses means. But some will say, what if he doesn't want to give me salvation? This is a big sticking point for many people. That somehow I wanted it, but I wasn't privy to it. What if I want God? What if I want eternal life? What if I want the blessings that excel all blessings? My question would be, do you? What's to prevent you from coming? Why do you think you want it when others clearly saw the miracles and never bowed the knee to Jesus Christ? Do you want it? And this is where this this passage is so beautiful because here were a bunch of people who didn't want it. And in Jesus, he's not discouraged and he's praising the Father for what he has done. He clearly says salvation is of the Lord. And then we listen to the very next words that are given. He says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. If you want this, he's calling. If you have in your heart Boy, I'd sure love to know Jesus Christ. I would sure love to be able to go to bed at night and not have the weight of my sin hanging on me. I don't know where to dump this burden. I wish it could be true. But I'm sitting in a Presbyterian church and, and uh, they're, they're talking about God choosing people. Friend, listen to me. Are you convicted by your sin? Does your violation of the law of God bust your heart? Are you scared to death that somebody's going to find out what you've been looking at on your computer? Are you scared of what the IRS is going to do? Are you afraid of what someone would find out going on in your home? Jesus Christ is where you need to go. This is what he says. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I, I will give you rest. I will give you rest. Come. To come means to approach him in faith. The writer of Hebrews said, and without faith it is impossible to please him for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. To come means To come to him with the knowledge of who he is and that he has come to bless the sinner with the forgiveness of life. And you you acknowledge this truth, but it's not just knowing the truth. It's agreeing, it's assenting with knowledge to this knowledge and coming to him with this confidence that he will never turn you away. I can tell you this about Jesus Christ. He has never, ever 
turned away a sinner who called out to him in faith. Jesus, save me. And he says, of course. I put that weight in your heart. I burdened you with this. I gave you ears to hear. Come to me, he says, and I will save you. And he does. He comes, we come, and he saves, and our confidence is, is in him. It doesn't mean walking an aisle, nor is it mechanically mouthing a prayer. It is throwing yourself, all of your weight, all of your garbage, all of your sin at the feet of Jesus Christ and pleading with him for mercy and forgiveness. And friends, you will find it. You will find it in Jesus Christ. Who should come? How do you know if you're a candidate? Because you are weary and you are heavy laden. This is all that is required of our Savior, that you be empty of yourself and that you not uh, be able to handle your life or death in your own strength. You set aside your pride and you come like an infant. I have nothing. I am nothing. I deserve all wrath because of my sin. Jesus said that the Father conceals this from the wise and intelligent. And he's not talking about people with an IQ of 150 or higher. It's not what he's talking about. The wise and intelligent would be those who are worldly wise. Right? We talked about this a little bit earlier in the service. The idea that I'm not so bad. I'm not really a sinner like other guys are sinners. I'm a little better breed of sinner. I'm a little more entitled to grace than someone else. He's talking about those kinds of people. There's, it's concealed from them, the wise and intelligent, and he reveals it to infants, infants who can do nothing. We were down in Denver. We stayed with Paul and Alyssa and their little boy, Hawk. Hawk is a, he's a beautiful little boy. He's got very short legs, like the Thurston family. <laughs> and it was funny watching him crawl. He's crawling now. And he doesn't have much clearance when he's crawling. And so his, he just kind of scoots along like this. And there was this little toy. It looked like a donut made of fabric. And he got high-sided uh, high on that donut. And it was just a little thing. It's about this high. And he's crawling along. And his legs got stuck on this donut. And he's, he goes, I can't do this. And it was just a reminder to me that, that infants really can do nothing. They're helpless. That's the picture. Who does he reveal himself to? To helpless people. To people who get high-sighted on a donut and can't move themselves. They can't. They haven't the power. They haven't the ability. Who should come? Those who, those who are weary and heavy laden. Those who toil and are burdened. Who are in a state of weariness. Who are exhausted. Who are spent. Because you are under an unrelenting taskmaster again as in the case of the lord's original audience they were under taskmasters the taskmasters of the scribes and pharisees and again as i as i read to you um or as i, I quoted to you matthew 5 48 uh, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and pharisees you cannot enter into the kingdom of god what is this standard of god my friends for you to enter into heaven it's not to be pretty good it's not to be good Hell is full of good people. Good people with good intentions. 
Hell is full of this. The scribes and the Pharisees in that day had taken the law of God and they added to it the traditions of men who made the law so extremely burdensome that they could not bear up under it. So when it came to Sabbath observance, it was questions about how far you could or couldn't walk, how heavy an object you could or shouldn't carry, what you could eat or not eat. They were burdened beyond belief. The problem is, is when we read this, we're not burdened by anything. That's where I think there's a disconnect sometimes and why I said what I did about the grace of God being amazing is because we don't think of ourselves as being sinners because we haven't murdered anyone. And and we're told here today that we should have self-esteem. I I mentioned this before, made me laugh, that college students in the United States, this report is probably six, six years old maybe, where they had talked about our college students in the United States on the world, uh, world scene has the highest self-esteem of any other people, but we are among the lowest test scores. <laughs> We've got good, healthy self-esteem, right? And then we have people telling us that God loves us all. Which, one verse, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. That blows that theology out of the water. You have to explain it. In one sense, he loves his creation, correct? He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. He sends the sunlight. He does these things. But in one sense, he does not love us. Because when people say God loves us all, that means all people are going to heaven. And that's universalism. And the Bible does not teach that. And so we're all good. And we have healthy self-esteem. And we think well of ourselves. And so me and God, we're like this. I'm not worried about dying. Well, friend, you should be worried about dying. That's the bottom line. You should be worried about dying. And we've lost two people in this town just this week if we needed any other reminder that life is brief. We have violated the law of God and our righteousness is not greater than that of the scribes and Pharisees. Under the burden of the law, these folks were wearied and always wondering if they were doing good enough for God, always with the nagging suspicion that they were not, that they must try harder, work harder. You can imagine the Israelites who had to create bricks without straw. We'll not reduce your quota. We're not going to give you straw. And yet we want you to make bricks without straw. You ever feel like that? I'm trying to make bricks and I don't have the straw. I'm trying to please God and I can't seem to do it. My Christianity is weak. My faith is weak. I fall short all the time. I cannot deliver and meet God's righteous demands. You ever feel that way? You ever want to punch yourself in the head and say, stupid? What's wrong with you? Why can't you do this? And it's because, my friends, you can't. Praise the Lord when you recognize that you can't. Because the gospel is for the weary. The gospel is for the burdened. Some struggle with this very thing, even today, even after all I've said. There are some who need to understand there is a law 
they will be judged by that law and God demands them to be perfect. And then there are others who are saying, God demands us to be perfect and I'm really trying to be perfect and I can't be perfect and I'm in despair. I don't know what to do. And you can't rest. You don't rest because you're trusting in your efforts and in your performance. And friends, today is a day of good news. Jesus came to bring the sinner rest. The law that's unyielding, the law that's unbending, those ten commandments which apply to what we do and don't do, what we think and how we behave, of which if we stand against it, we will find out that we are horrible wrecks. Jesus came to meet the demands. God himself, Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus, he saves his people from his sins. Our Joshua, who has come to lead us into the promised land, Jesus has come to lead us to the promised land and to meet the demands of God on our behalf. Your taskmaster, your slave masters, they have no power. And how does he do this, my friends? Verse 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friends, the rest of the Lord comes to those who exchange the yoke of this world's making for the Lord's yoke. A yoke was typically used uh, in dealing with animals to pull a load. It was also used by people to distribute or to carry water or some other thing and they would carry it on their neck. William Hendrickson says this, it represented the sum total of obligations which according to the rabbis, a person must take upon himself. So you would have the yoke of the Torah. A man had to bear the yoke, the burden of the Torah, or the yoke of the commandments, the yoke of the kingdom of heaven. These things were twisted and abused, and they became unbearable weights to bear up under. An illustration that was given to me some years ago, it stuck with me of a woman who got married. And her husband had no warmth. He had no affection. He was more like a cruel taskmaster. And he exacted performance from his spouse. In fact, he produced a list for her so that their home could function efficiently and they could have peace in their home. On this list, he he said, I want breakfast every morning at 6.30. I want toast. It needs to be wheat toast. Don't give me any of this white bread. I want butter on that toast. Give me jam, not jelly, because jelly's lumpy. I want two eggs over medium, coffee, just a little bit of half and half, not the powdered kind, one teaspoon of sugar. Give me a tumbler of orange juice, but make sure it's pulp-free. And while you're making breakfast, I'd like you to have the television turned on to the news so that... I can find out what's happening in the world, and uh, I don't want you to interrupt me, and please make sure the volume's up high enough so that when I'm crunching my wheat bread, I can still hear. And the list went on. Monday is laundry day, and you can clean the bathrooms. Tuesday is grocery day, and he gave her money and expected the name brands, and he would check the receipts when she came home to make sure that she was spending her money wisely. Wednesday, it was dusting and windows. Thursday was garbage day. Don't forget to take the can out to the street. 
and pick up the dry cleaning and do the other errands that need to be done. Friday was paying bills day and banking. And Saturday, you can help me in the yard and in the garage and other odd jobs that are around the house. And Sunday, um, after we get home from church, I want a big meal like mother used to make. And after you clean the dishes, sweetheart, you can have a rest with me. And if she didn't do these things, this man would rant and rave and give the silent treatment and guilt trips until she performed. After 12 years of this, she was wearied, she was tired. The once vibrant and lovely 20-year-old, now 32, was exhausted and pale, had bags under her dim eyes. She was broken. Her husband died. She was alone. She was alone for several years, and she remarried. But this man, her second husband, was different. He would greet her in the morning with a smile, and he would bring coffee to her every morning. He would leave little notes around the house expressing his affection and showing how much he cherished his wife and telling her often in his words that she was important to him. And by his deeds, he demonstrated a love. And she went on like this, a new creature, happy as can be. And one day as she was cleaning out old clothes, she finds a piece of folded up paper, and it was a list. It was a list that her previous husband had given her, stuck in one of her pockets. And she read the list. Monday it was laundry, Tuesday was grocery, Wednesday was dusting and windows. And then she realized, I'm doing all the same thing still. But she wasn't burdened. It wasn't burdensome because she understood she didn't have to keep her husband's love. But it was because she had her husband's love that these things she did. I don't know if it's a true story, but it works for an illustration. My friends, there are some of you, spiritually speaking, who are under a yoke of obligations that you can't bear up under. And you're busy convincing others how you've got your life together. You're strapped with performance or in superstition. You have this worldly yoke which makes you the sole decider and burden bearer of your future happiness and blessing. And you drive yourself with these words, I must get better, I must do better, I must be perfect, I must secure my future for myself. And what does Jesus Christ say to us? Come to me, take my yoke upon you, and learn from me. Exchange that yoke of the world's making for the yoke that Jesus Christ provides. My yoke is easy, says Jesus, and my burden is light. Or it is good, it is serviceable, It is easy to bear. His yoke is pleasant. He says, take it upon you and learn from me. He is gentle and humble in heart. He is kind and his yoke is doable. It's still a yoke. You are told to take it upon you. It is free of the absurd, of the empty ritual, and free from the control of the flesh. And you are free, according to Paul in Romans 6, free now to serve the Lord with gratitude and thanksgiving. Take this yoke upon you, take it upon yourself, and you will find rest for your souls. Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 6, 16, 
Thus says the Lord, stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. The people of God had left the ancient ways. They were to ask for the good way that they might walk in it. And so doing, they would find rest for their souls. Jesus came to them and they said, we don't want you. You understand that Jesus Christ is the ancient way. Jesus Christ is the good way. Adam and Eve knew it. Noah knew it. Abraham knew it. Isaac and Jacob and Joseph knew it. Moses, who gave us the law, he knew it. The law was never given or intended to save anyone. It was intended to show us our need of the Messiah, which it does. Joshua and Caleb knew it. Rahab and Ruth They knew it. David and Daniel, the prophets, the apostles, they all knew it, that Jesus Christ is the pleasant yoke. Jesus Christ is the pleasant yoke. Jesus Christ is our righteousness. And it does not depend upon you. It must not depend upon you. We look to Jesus who is our righteousness alone, and we will be saved. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for your word and for this passage and for how it takes our eyes and removes it from ourselves and lifts us to you. Would you, Lord, please bless this word in our hearts and minds that we would come to rest in you to not look upon ourselves, our morals, our accomplishments as though we have some semblance of righteousness that you should be uh, pleased with. For we have no righteousness of our own, and therefore we rejoice in the Lord. Again, we rejoice in the Lord. Bless this, we pray, and set your people free. Set the captives free, we pray. And I do humbly ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.